Hi everyone, Kyle Marshall here. I just have a small production note before the episode starts here this week. Normally, when Dave and I have to record via Zoom, we each are recording into separate audio recorders while just using Zoom to talk to each other face-to-face. And after having done that for, you know, a year and a half, for some reason, for the very first time, as I pushed up on my recorder, I watched as all of my audio disappeared. Uh, luckily, I also record on Zoom kind of as a backup just in case. And so that's what you're going to hear from my audio. Dave is going to sound great. And I'm going to sound a little bit uh, mechanical, let's just say, this week. I get to sound like the machine a little bit. Not that bad, but you'll, you'll hear the difference for sure when the episode starts. So just thought you should know. And now we can talk about the apartment. This is a Media Lab podcast. Look at it, Dave. Isn't it beautiful? Uh, yes. I'm, I'm talking about the Earth. Why are you? Why? Oh yeah, yeah. Why are you yeah. looking at my groin, Dave? <laughs> Jesus Christ! It's getting personal. This podcast is getting a little, uh, you know, adult in nature. What if the are you children looking at your are groin, to Dave? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's blue. Looks like it's mostly water, which I think is a surprise for yeah. most of us. Listen, I think in order to celebrate, we've made our way back to Earth here finally. Maybe I, as, a, as a gesture of good faith, let me cook you a meal. Is that okay yeah. if I cooked you a meal? I don't know. It's been two years. Uh, I've never seen you pick up anything other than uh, your phone to order skip well, the dishes. Come on. How hard is it going to be to make spaghetti? I've got my tennis racket. I've got some water. <laughs> That's all I need. All right. Let's do it. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone. Especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle, and I'm Dave, and I'm the Machine. I'm relieved to be back. The, I'm I'm relieved that the, the Machine has actually made its way back after venturing off ship there at the end of last week's episode. So I don't know what its ultimate plan is here. Murder. It's always murder. I have to keep an eye on it. Anyways, this is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. I guess again, after an entire year in space, we've made our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the movie, The Apartment. Ingredient number one, a very warm, very wonderful story about a boy, a girl and a very special kind of problem. Did you hear what I said, Miss Kubelik? I absolutely adore you. Shut up and deal. Ingredient number two. A brilliant cast. Jack Lemon in a delightful role which gives full reign to Jack's amazing versatility. Shirley MacLaine, whose glowing warmth lights up the screen like a Christmas tree. Fred McMurray. You know, normally, Dave, our 
podcast is focused on an entire year of film. We spend an entire season going through a bunch of movies from the same year. We're in this weird purgatory here for the next few weeks as we have to stay in quarantine before we're allowed back. Yeah. Well, I mean, Dave, I've, been, I've been hanging with you for the last year. How could I not? Well, I just be? feel like we left 1971, so mm-hmm. everything feels like a break. You know, happy days are here again, Dave. But we're in this weird purgatory where we're not really focusing on our next year, which is 1982. We've left 1971. Ooh. So we're going to be bouncing around for the next couple of weeks for films on the Letterboxd Top 250. That, of course, is going to be why we're talking about the apartment here this week. Before we do anything, just to make this episode longer, <laughs> I have some letters. You want to go to our, to our inbox, Dave, and, and read some letters? Letters? Okay. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I, I don't want to like ruin this deep and rich fiction that we have created here for ourselves, but we may have just recorded a whole bunch of episodes all at one time back in November and December. Uh, And therefore, when we got some correspondence to us, now is the only time we could have actually brought it onto the show. Right. Because it's not December 3rd. Correct. Um, (laughs) Actually, what what, what is the date here today? Today is uh, December. No, we're January. We're January 7th here, Dave. We're January 7th. Time space continuum. It's a Mm -hmm. paradox. This is not live. I know, sorry. This is live as we exist in two places at once. This was sent in, though, on our Instagram account at KDVSTM by Mr. Clement Lee. So thank you, Clement, for sending this in. But he was specifically discussing our discussion on Throw Away Your Books Rally in the Streets. You remember that film from a few weeks ago? Not really. Oh, God. It's been a best, while, One man. of the best <laughs> films of 1971. One of the best films, according to some other people, not us. But we had this conversation around it about how, again, for us at least, not being like the most knowledgeable people about Japanese cinema, like how this truly felt within that culture. And I brought up the fact that like this, I think, is the first time I've really seen as provocative as it was, like uh, queerness being shown on screen in a Japanese mm. film. Of course, it was also... Uh, very art house cinema, that sort of thing. Anyways, he wrote in and said this. It's a huge topic when the late 60s in Japan is highly influenced by the U.S. influence of consumerism and that the, these queering art uh, and that the, the queering of this art just burst out in all directions. So one of the things that we didn't touch upon was that is that specifically in the 60s and 70s, there is a push for the younger filmmakers are pushed back against American consumerism specifically. Materialism is the main mainstream, thus these queer films just fought for radical change. He talks a little bit also about how like, he, he's not a huge fan of uh, that filmmaker either who made Throw Away Your Books, but that all the people around him were doing some really fascinating things. So specifically, The Ceremony in the Realm of the Senses, Empire of Passion, and Gohato apparently are some of like the hallmarks of Japanese queer cinema. Oh, okay. You're naming films. You need to, you know, tell people what you're talking about. I'm about to list off five films here, everyone. So that's The Ceremony, In the Realm of the Senses, Empire of Passion, and Gahato, I believe is how how you say it here. Anyways, so I thank you so much for sending that in, Clement. I thought that was really fascinating to to kind of read through. And of course, I've now put all those films on my like to watch list that I'll get to in like seven years from now. You're nothing if not punctual. Speaking of number seven, Kyle. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's get let's get with it. 
Just watch Seven Samurai already. Christ's sake. Oh, got you. See, Dave, you have to tell people what you're talking about before it's you just January launch into it. I wasn't talking to anybody else. I was talking <laughs> explicitly to you. And it's 2022. Maybe. Well, well, I guess we won't know until the fullness of time. But perhaps I've made a commitment to watch that on New Year's Day of 2022. Uh, oh, but so who you knows? just watched it. Right. Who knows? How we was it for you? Have, it, was pro- <laughs> it was great and or frustrating i don't know we'll have to find out we'll have to find out by the way i just want to give another prompt if you want to send commentary to us push back on some of our opinions on the show please do so yeah kyle and dave vs the machine yeah like (laughs) absolutely (laughs) kyle and dave vs the machine at gmail.com is how you can send emails but again you can go to twitter or you can go to Instagram and uh, send us messages on there. Was there anything you wanted to talk about about as far as Japanese queer cinema, Dave? No, I don't know anything about it. I mean, I guess just topically, it feels like many other cultures uh, seem braver to Mm. put that onto the screen as opposed to North American film. Uh, But I don't know if that is, uh, what what did you call it? Queer cinema or uh, not mainstream stuff? But we saw some weird things in Godzilla, so... I don't know. I just, I just feel like having watched anime and uh, Jap- Japanese films of the '80s, '90s, and now in the 2000s, I feel like they definitely take more risks, and mm-hmm. it's more normalized to do weird stuff. Whereas, um, I think in North America, I mean, you would know more than me because you watch horror films, but I yeah. feel like North America has a lot of trouble still depicting things that are challenging. Yeah, I mean, even I- I'm sure that. The discourse has been raging here, but the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, some of the pushback on that one is uh, apparently some pretty awful Asian racist stereotypes are in, inside of that movie. I've not seen it as of this recording, so I can't comment Perfect. on that. But the but also a weird thing that we've been actually commenting on a bunch of 1971 films where a romance of like, that's a kid and an adult. And that seems kind of weird that we're still propagating that up. Uh, but as far as like queer uh, queerness and queer cinema goes there's been definitely been an explosion of it and a more of an exploration in it even in mainstream films i, I still don't think we've like pushed through it being like they're just like the supporting actor in like the main actor storyline in like blockbuster cinema i think that'll be like the true test like could you make shang chi let's say but have him be gay maybe maybe not maybe marvel will push it that way eventually do we want that that's also the other question yeah <laughs> Well, I, I would, yeah, I think the asterisk is not, can we, it's, uh, can we do it in a way that's natural? Because mm. I feel like the PC culture is forcing the narrative, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But for example, we're seeing all of the Marvel, like specifically Marvel, we're seeing all the Marvel uh, superheroes be recast as people of color, as women. So that's not necessarily bad, but because the writing is not underneath it, it feels so, it feels so awkward. It, it's something a little bit off about it. Even disregarding the writing and whether it's able to meet the, the challenges of what they're trying to do. I, th- this is my opinion. <laughs> So send your letters to me personally. I think the issue comes in when the either the marketing team or the producers get out in front of their skis too much and are like, wow, that's so Canadian. This <laughs> is a woman and it's starring a woman. And we have to like celebrate the fact that this is a woman. But if the movie's not good, then it's just still it's like, OK, great. But like, it's <laughs> still not good. I, I think this is kind of that problem with like, I haven't seen it, though. That's So I don't like to use this example if I haven't seen the movie, but like the Ocean's 8. 
situation, mm. which is mm. like it's Ocean's Eleven, but it's with women. And it's called yeah, Ocean's yeah. Eight. It's amazing. Oh, Ghostbusters. Yeah, you're you're trying to utilize an existing property so that people come to it, but then try and being progressive at the same time and kind of failing in both counts. <laughs> because and that's, it, yeah. so it's like it's I would say. And I don't know, maybe this makes me a hack or whatever, but it's, it feels like it'd be much more natural to be like, let's make a really amazing heist movie for these amazing actresses that doesn't have to do anything to do with Ocean's Eleven and don't have to have that baggage put onto it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how closely Soderbergh was connected to that film. I didn't really research it, but you could easily have made the, essentially the exact same movie mm-hmm. and not called it Ocean's Anything, right? Because mm-hmm. the movie itself is not terrible. It it has a lot of the same sort of comedic beats and they are committing a weird heist. So it could have been its own thing if you if you were inclined to make a all women team heist film. I mean I haven't seen the Eternals, but when I see the uh, promotional stuff, I this is what it feels like to me. It feels like a throw to try to get back onto the BIPOC scene because uh, they've been called out that every superhero is white, essentially blonde, and a man. And I think right. that you know I don't read comic books so maybe the Eternals were popular I don't think so because I've never heard of them before this movie came out it's weird because it's it is the things that I I want but it felt like let's throw everything all at once gay character women boom, blah, 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 like just throwing it all at once without is. actually developing any strong characters that's my opinion of the Eternals which I didn't really like all that much I think the gay character actually is handled pretty well in that movie to be really honest but it's like it's again another one of those things and just how I know uh, both Marvel and how Disney works those scenes are going to be easily cut out when it goes to China and I know that's going to be cut out and not referenced and stuff like that so great we're so super progressive here but we still need to make money by putting this over into markets that don't feel comfortable with that stuff being on screen and i personally think that that is cowardly yeah that's and so that's i guess the next challenge for entertainment is that we, like having a genre called queer cinema you know mm-hmm. tells you everything that you need to know and because i'm not queer identify that way i've never even heard of it I, half the time anyone brings up a title i've it's like i didn't even know things existed uh in that world because i don't I don't have access to it or want it, frankly. And then when we watch something, it's like, oh yeah, this is great, but I have nothing. It's not part of my world. So the, the last thing I'll say on this, because we should probably get talking about the apartment, which the what? is sorry. This yeah, is not, I, know. I thought this is a wrap-up episode for 2021. I know. The other big thing is that I think t- t- so many times people focus on Oh, queer cinema, that means I'm going to have to watch a lot of gay people either making out or having sex. And and does that exist in some queer cinema? Absolutely, 100%. But is that the only thing that happens? No, you can still have a character very well-rounded, happens to be a gay person, and not that be the only thing of their personality that's focused on. Right. That that was kind of my frustration growing up in the 90s and then into the 2000s. It seemed like anytime there was a, a queer narrative put into, and we saw this in 1999 a little bit, it's like anytime there was like a main character who is queer, who is in that lead role, it's like, well, you're either going to die of AIDS or going to get beat up brutally and killed. Yeah. Yay. Or you become a pantomime of uh, stereotypes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome to being a minority, right? True. What was the one you referred to me? Uh, The one that was on Netflix for a bit. That was pretty good. Uh, Oh, straight up. Straight up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's great. Yeah, movies like that where you're talking about characters. Imagine writing a movie, Kyle, that's centered around character development. And yeah. not a hundred million dollars of blowing shit up on a 
street in Calgary. <laughs> what a great segue uh, for our film we're going to be talking about here today. Actually, interesting, a great segue from Straight Up, too, because I think some of the dialogue is actually pretty close to classic Hollywood cinema. We're talking about the apartment here today. So I want to know, Dave, first and foremost, what your history with Billy Wilder is. Uh, I think I like him. I, I couldn't. I have to Google his so movies. I'll tell you his, his four biggest big ones. ones. Yeah, are going to be the original Sabrina with Bogart, yeah, Audrey good. Hepburn, yeah. William Holden. Some like it hot, right? With yeah. Marilyn Monroe and Jack Lemmon. Sunset Boulevard, amazing. And then, and then the apartment. Yeah. So, I mean, of those four, I actually have never seen the original Sabrina. I hate to say it. I've oh, seen it's the other pretty good. I've seen um, the other three, and yeah. love and love all three of those movies. I think Sunset Boulevard oh. is amazing. I think yeah, something like hot is still funny, even though you would think that like yeah. this, there's no way this is going to hold up in the 2021 yeah, yeah. context. And actually, we'll talk about in this movie. I don't know how Billy Wilder does it. It has amazing last lines of a movie. He's able mm. to have this really great button onto his movies a lot of the time. You push all of my buttons. So, yeah, definitely like a very important American filmmaker, although, as we'll find out, was not American, <laughs> although he's considered like, yeah, like that proto like this is what made hollywood hollywood in a lot of ways sunset boulevard was incredible i don't mm -hmm. want to call things like a perfect movie but it had me from its opening premise with that film noir setup all the way into this uh, depiction and you of said madness. you didn't like william holden mr man <laughs> um no i didn't say i didn't like william holden i just didn't like wild rovers and those are yeah, two, separate two, two separate problems yeah. things two separate things <laughs> Sunset Boulevard um, also has one of the greatest openings of all time with him just dead in the pool, right? So it's like, okay, yes. well, how are we getting here? Yeah, it just touches on everything. It's so great as a reflection on Hollywood itself, on mm. a reflection of, yeah, human madness and depravity. It's got, got everything you want in it. So it's got that classic feel. It's black and white. It, ooh, you know, don't be intimidated. Yeah. Um, it is essentially character drama, although it is very melodramatic. And uh, it'll grip you. It'll hold you in, in my opinion. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that if, if I'd been able to rope Helen into watching it, she would have been enwrapped by it too, because it's just perfect. Every mm -hmm. part of it is shot. I mean, the one thing about Billy Wilder that I'm learning too, if we had already watched The Apartment, is uh, the guy can shoot a good looking film too. It's not sure just, yeah. oh, you know, uh, these people are acting really well. It's not compartmentalized. It's the full package. The ending, I mean, it's got the, the most famous line, but the way it's delivered, again, I don't know if this is directed or if it's, uh, what's her name's, uh, just her persona, but oh man, she's uh, electric. Gloria Swanson. You're talking about Gloria Swanson. Swanson yeah. Uh, she's, she's incredible in it. You can't, she, as soon as she's on the screen, you can't, you can't look away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's so, well, uh, have you seen the apartment before no. this week? Okay. So this is going to be uh, all no. brand new information. Right. Okay. We'll bring that up. I'll bring up last lines then and, and when we talk about that movie, because I think it's so remarkable that he has three of the best last lines of a movie. Yeah. I, I really love Billy Wilder, the stuff I've seen, seen of his. I have this awful, awful thing where I always confuse him and Frank Capra. For some reason, mm -hmm. I get them all intertwined. It's like, oh, no, no, that's Frank Capra. This is Billy Wilder. They all, they both have a little bit of that idea of like the Americana-ness to it. Although Billy Wilder is a lot more, I would say, um, pessimistic sometimes <laughs> in his mm -hmm. films. Okay, uh, there's a negative that. edge in it, uh, which we'll also find out why probably in his backstory. He made movies up until the 80s, Dave. Did you know this? No, I did not. Yeah. I mean, apparently his last movie in 1981 is like awful, like awful, awful. Yeah, how can you? 
Yeah, he can't keep that up. But his his run in the 50s into the 60s is one of the best runs of a director, I would say. He wrote most of his own stuff too, which is not out of the question. But yeah, he definitely Mm -hmm. had this eye for like dialogue and being able to shoot it. He would actually like, as much as we've been talking about like how he frames things and is able to capture it, he actually started to push against that later on in his career where he was like, it's what they're saying in the human humanity of the people that's important. Fancy shots and stuff are okay, but it's like it's I don't care about that. I want to focus in on what what is happening. So just kind of two different ideas of filmmaking. There was actually indirect opposition to like Orson Welles and um, some of those people <laughs> that were working that were his contemporaries. Yeah, Orson Welles most likely had no opinion on that. I'm sure. Uh, so the apartment I have seen, it is one of my favorite films of all time. I really, really love. No bias for this. No review. bias, okay. of course. <laughs> It is, it's a type of romantic comedy that I like in that it is super depressing at the same time. <laughs> this, this shows so much about my personality. It's like, no, no, no. I need there to be a little grit in my, in my love story that goes wow. along. But it's also part so of what you I you have felt. another podcast, right? About why yeah. you're single? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, why I'm horny. I'm yeah, gonna... I know. If, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, uh. This is also, I think, the movie that fully made me fall in love with Jack Lemmon as an actor. Uh, I had grown up with him just like you, Dave. I think seeing him in Grumpy Old Man and him as like an old man, but seeing him as a young person, he's younger than I am in this movie, Dave. I, I just remember him being able to flip between comedy and drama really effectively. So we'll see if I still yes. believe that as we as we go into this. But I'm excited to get into the apartment. We're going to see some good movies here for the next three weeks, Dave. Yeah, I didn't like Jack Lemmon. Oh, God. Full stop. Jesus Christ. All right. Well, <laughs> I guess we're going to segue You're over here. You're waiting for me to expound on it, but it's, a, you know, it's just a firm statement. I don't like mm. him. I don't like the look of his face. Oh, come hey. on. What are you BDN talking about? I, I don't know. I just, it, my, my introduction to him was Hamlet. Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. I'm like, he just ruined the pacing of this film with his fucking American accent. Which, which guard was he? You would know better than me. And uh, He's at the very beginning for like five seconds. Yeah, and he five ruins seconds the movie, like, apparently. Whoa, whoa, what is this asshole doing this? And uh, and I'm not, as you know, not the biggest Walter Matthau fan. So well, Walter Matthau isn't in this movie, Dave. So I'm just saying, Grumpy Old Man was not, uh, men was not my bag, my, uh-huh. not my bag of tea. Uh, and I don't think I've ever watched any other of his movies. I'll look at it because I will admit right now, I totally forgot I was supposed to do backstory stuff. Uh, mm-hmm, been busy mm-hmm. with my real life. Oh yeah, being up on the ship, being so busy, being so, so busy. (laughs) All right, well, let's see this. Let's go and thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about the apartment. Dave, I know I sound so much better in this ad reads section. I know I said that I lost all my audio at the beginning of this episode, but uh, for some reason, it did work while we were recording the ads. Because what's more important on this podcast than talking about films? Ad reads. Listen... I gotta keep the lights on in this saucer. Of, mm. Is it a saucer or is it like a rocket? We never really established that. I think we established saucer-ish. Right, is right. What it, yeah, is we what it looks like. But we only have a couple more weeks before we get to go back down to Earth, Dave. I mean, it's great. Disembark? We a, are, we, are we gonna be on a boat? Have you thought about what's next? I don't, I don't, what do you mean think about? This happens so naturally as we go through our journeys together on this ship. James Cameron's deep sea submarine. We should ask. Uh-huh. He should, he, uh, he should throw us some money here. Give us like a billion dollars of those uh, Avatar sequels that are totally going to be coming out this year for sure this time. <laughs> well, one of, the hu- few hu- ugh, one of the few human beings who probably has a billion dollar bill in his wallet, right? 
There you go. He actually has a real life avatar. <laughs> he actually has a big seven foot tall blue thing. What is that? Like with he, a dildo. He like <laughs> don't know what. <laughs> Walks into it. All right. Let's 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 move on. So of course, Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. They're probably not super proud of us right now. Locally grown, community supported, the Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Oh yeah, Happy New Year! Wait, is it New Happy Year? New yeah. Year. Happy Yay, New Year! Yay, it's 2022 apparently. The apartment. Welcome to my apartment. Uh huh. This episode of Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is brought to you by. The Alberta Association of Optometrists proudly celebrating a century of caring for Albertans. Although I believe it was a century last year, so it's actually a century and one. Ooh, math. But who who wants basic, to split hairs? Basic maths, as they say in England. Yeah, but who cares about England? Wow. It happens. Many people don't call their optometrists first for urgent eye care when you need it. From spring cleaning mishaps. Sorry. I don't know why <laughs> Is that I laugh thing? when I hear that. Because I always, I always think like a spike coming into my eye and my first thing like, my optometrist. I need to talk to my optometrist. <laughs> it's more like a scratch cornea is what you want to do uh, wow. for your optometrists. But from spring cleaning mishaps to winter eye infections, if you or your family have an eye emergency, doctors of optometry are trained to diagnose, treat, and prescribe medications. No referral necessary. And just a reminder, Alberta Health Coverage is available towards your urgent eye care appointment. To find an optometrist in your area, you can visit optometrists.ab.ca. The Alberta Association of Optometrists represents almost 800 doctors of optometry in over 80 communities across the province. Members are highly trained, regulated health professionals who provide primary eye health and vision care to Albertans. Learn more at optometrists.ab.ca. And remember, the first thing you should always ask your doctor, are you regulated? Wow. How regular are you? Dave, what do you have for me? I don't know. Just a lot of criticism, usually. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's too personal. What used to be our main sponsor, and still is likely our main sponsor, is uh, ATB Financial, our Alberta bank. Wait, what does ATB stand for? Transactional bank? The Alberta Treasury Branch. Treasury Branch. I was completely incorrect. I got Alberta mm-hmm. right. Alberta Teetotaler Board <laughs> is what it stands for. <laughs> Could actually in this province might work. They have their own podcast, Kyle. And let's pitch it. It's called mm. The Future Of. Can you, you should do the echo. The sound. Future Of what? Future Of. 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 Uh, of. I don't know. If we need to know, we should ask Todd Hirsch. Todd Hirsch is the host. He's also the... ATB Financial's Vice President and Chief Economist, and this podcast has launched its third season by connecting with industry leaders to uncover what's on the horizon of the things that mean the most to you. The Future of Podcasts promises to give you insights to help navigate what is often an uncertain future. Never more so than now, Kyle. That's true. No, it's uncertain why they decided to end their title on a preposition, which is incorrect grammar, first of all. Actually, I'm still reading. I just want, I just, oh, you're still going. Go. That was, that I'll do like my a, bullshit at the end. Yeah, if you, like just keep, you keep reading. <clears throat> Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. Subscribe to the future of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. And connect with us at atb.com slash the future of the future of.
I only use a disc man. How do I get this podcast on my disc man? Just got to scratch it. You got to open the lid. <laughs> Blow on it first. <laughs> Find yeah. the right channel. Yeah. It'll work. All right. Well, let's go back to my bad audio and talk about the apartment. If we had watched that a month ago, I would remember more about what we were talking about. All right, Dave. We got to uh, spend a little bit of time in 1960s America. Uh, give me your give me your thoughts about the apartment. Give me the thoughts, Daddy. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a fantastic movie. I guess this is why uh, whenever we start a new year, we get a little reprieve and uh, <laughs> stay in the top two hundred and fifty because we can watch things that are cleansing the palate. Dave, critical cleansing the palate. Yeah, yeah, and not sort of um, what you know. Nineteen seventy one had so many so called critically acclaimed movies that were more uh, revisiting uh, things with mm. new contexts, but this. This is one of those classic films, and as I learned, uh, as you bring up at the beginning of this episode, I apparently love Billy Wilder films because there's just something majestic. There are some scenes in this, like when he forlornly, and that's probably not the way to use that word, sits on the park bench, and oh, he's yeah. that wide angle. I mean, there's just little things that, uh, you know what I saw in that? Uh, probably like Woody Allen and all these people mm -hmm. probably loved movies of this nature. Oh, 100%, and just, yeah. You know, and you see this great uh, photograph in it. Shirley MacLaine, I mean, it's just great. Shirley MacLaine is magnetic. She's she's fascinating to watch because she's just, uh, she just looks different than everybody else in this film. Yeah. Uh, there's something that stands out about her. I like Jack Lemmon. It was, it was surprising to watch him, as you were bringing up a little earlier too, uh, be able to flip between being a ham and a clown yeah. and then having these genuine moments. I did feel like at the end, the 60s sort of... Uh, patriarchal male chauvinist tone was starting to get to me a little bit you know mm. all the women are birds for lack of a better sure. shitty term like they have there's no no depth except for Shirley MacLaine and uh, the only credit I'll give to that part of it is that Shirley MacLaine's character at least is given a, a little chutzpah <laughs> Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she has some grit to her uh, but even at the end that's the only thing on the tone by the end of the movie, I was starting to get a little worn out in a 2022 right. sensitivity. I was just like, ah, oh, they've got a whole scene of a office party gone wild and all the secretaries are dancing on a table. Like, yeah. it's just weird, man. You know, performative. But maybe that was normal. So I have no idea what 1960s office parties were actually like. Maybe maybe it was just like Mad Men. Who knows? I don't know. Well, they what was that? You know, we watched. Is it called Office Party? There's that movie with Jason Bateman on that mm. one that goes totally wrong. Apparently, American corporations may still have parties of this nature. I I don't. So I feel like yeah, if you're working for Google, Facebook, or any of those big corporations, yeah, how's Cupertino? Go. Did you ever get down there for? Uh, the the re the birth of Christ. There is beer bashes that happen every second Friday there. So <laughs> I actually never was able to be a part of one of those. I was always on the opposite week somehow. I went to a beer bash once and woke up the next morning infected with a U2 album I could never get rid of. Worst weekend of my life. And you know what's really fascinating about watching this movie is that because we did spend an entire year in 1971, you can kind of see how this movie is starting to bend. <laughs> <laughs> that mm -hmm. way yeah we, we know in our research and our lead up to 1971 that beginning in the 1960s like because of the influx of foreign films and what they were able to do hollywood was trying to play catch up and then they were able to talk about certain topics that they weren't able to talk about before so you can see even in this like to be honest like for 1960 this is kind of a racy movie we're talking about adultery and having, having premarital sex in this apartment and they never say that explicitly but we all we all know what's going on 
Whereas like in about 10 years from now, they could have been as explicit as they wanted to be. This movie has three great things going for it that you've already just mentioned. First is Jack Lemmon, who I just want to call it once again of just his facial tics that he's able to do of being like super annoyed by some of his coworkers. Being yeah, that ham, that funny contortionist at the beginning and put upon guy being woken up in the middle of the, the night so that someone can use his apartment and then contrasting it near the end where he has to very much like help this person through a very traumatic experience and still be there for her and be charming and that sort of thing and make it be believable that they're going to fall in love Shirley McLean is like the second great thing which uh, is such a knockout in a way I'd have to take a look. I can't believe she didn't win Best Actress this year for this movie. Uh, be that as it may, yeah, she is such a knockout, both in acting ability, but just in looks in this movie, if I'm going to degrade it down just to that simple aesthetic fact. Well, she stands out because there's something modern about her look, right? Compared to the way they portray all the other women. Yeah. The, the third thing is Billy Wilder's direction and, and attention to detail. M- maybe you're going to disagree. I really feel that the apartment still feels modern. Yes, it, like you can tell it was made in 1960. It's, it's contemporary to 1960. And they dress different, all that sort of thing. But like, honestly, you could basically update this, put it in 2021, I guess, give people iPhones and not really change much about the dialogue in this movie. And it would still work and it would still make sense. Yeah, it would still work as a drama and as a comedy at the same time. I, I just feel like what they're talking about, how they're discussing it, the way that it's acted, I think it all just is so well put together. And there is that staging. This is something that I miss in modern films where the cut is, I think, sometimes overused to tell a visual story. There's a moment that what Billy Wilder does, both Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon come out of the bedroom. Shirley MacLaine sits on, a, on, a, on the, the arm of a chair and Jack Lemmon is in the background. And then Jack Lemmon actually comes forward and crosses past her and the camera pulls back as he comes forward. They have a scene, he goes back and the camera pushes back in. So it's all this fluid motion that's happening. There's no cuts, but there's still movement with the camera and it's staged so well that there's, again, still things in the forward, mid and background that are being played with as, as the characters are moving around in it. And that's sometimes what I miss about modern cinema is that they don't allow the camera to help tell the story. And so it's just like, cut close up, cut long shot, cut over here, cut, 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 cut. And that, and that loses me for scenes like this, where I think it's more important to linger on how Shirley MacLaine is looking and feeling rather than anything else that's happening on in that scene. I think Billy Wilder knows that to an extent. It's like, this is what's important to focus on. There's that metaphor we use, uh, letting things breathe. Yeah. And I think that maybe, you know, we live in a society now where everybody's hyperventilating and kind of, uh, you know, it's got to be like fast, fast, fast. You know, I, I always hate on shaky cam, but thinking about that, it's kind of the same thing. There's an anxiety now when we make films. And this is not a total blanket statement. There are a lot of good movies being made, but what you're describing, there's a sense that I, there's a terrible, terrible commercial we see when we watch the CTV app, you know, like uh, to watch whatever television shows. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what they're advertising because I have a, a natural disassociation with advertising. But what I do know is they tried to make a 30 second TV ad like a TikTok video and they use off kilter fucking uh, camera work and like bright colors and they just throw on every two seconds, they're throwing another cut and it is not just obnoxious, it's nauseating. It's mm-hmm. just an inappropriate form. You know, if that's what's popular on this other platform, I don't, I don't give 
TikTok, my algorithm. I, I don't know, you know, I don't really want watch 20 year olds all dance the same dance over and over again. And that's not what TikTok has been for like five years, but sure. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. If that's what <laughs> the format of people's attention is now, then we can't make films that people appreciate where you can have these slow moving scenes. You know, we brought up Sunset Boulevard. Can a 15 year old handle it? I don't know. I hope so. You know, mm -hmm. I hope we can all sit down and still let a movie tell us a story without needing to know the end without getting bored before, uh, you know, needing more climax. If they remade this movie now in the wrong hands, this is a semi-pornographic film where they only focus on everybody having, you know, 40 second to two minute sex scenes, sweaty and naked in the apartment. And we lose the whole purpose of the film. And I'm being a little pessimistic about that and judgmental, but that's what I think would happen. And well, I'm, yeah, I'm sure and, they've done it. And if, I, and, I was, and if I was to pitch this movie, I think what's important, like I, whatever you, you could show the sex scenes between uh, the, the higher CEOs and, and people in his company. And stuff there's like no that. sex in it. Well, that's what I was about to lead up to. I think it works better because we never see Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine have sex. And I would keep that the way it is. If you wanted to be provocative, yeah, you could show the other people like finishing or whatever you wanted to do. But like, wow, they're, you want to see the other people well, finishing. Sorry, no, that's, no, that's fine, Kyle. We understand where you're going with that. Uh, uh, well, I think that's the point. I think a couple the of idea donkey punches that... here and there is fine. But <laughs> I think each each CEO has a different uh, yeah, yeah. different page in the Kama Sutra. They're trying. No, I I think that's the whole point, though. This idea that we need to push the limit or entice people with something pornographic, or even mm. if it's lowercase p pornographic, like HBO pornographic. Uh, I think that's the sickness. You know, when you watch these old films, they're able to transmit a story without having to scare you into it or to seduce you or to prey on your whatever, right? Your seven sins, right? You mm. have to be uh, brought in because of sex or uh, like, I love a good heist movie, but now they're so ridiculous because they have to steal whatever. At some point, it's going to be stealing human beings. So the, the, you know, the stakes are too high now. Are you saying that stealing a large golden egg is not provocative <laughs> enough for you, Dave? <laughs> I'm just saying, uh, I'm exhausted. I'm getting too old. Some of these movies are exhausting. They're just, just in case people have not watched the number one Netflix movie <laughs> of all time. It was a red notice <laughs> reference. That was so bad. Wait, is it actually number one? Is the number one movie of all time? I keep seeing this stupid commercial. The number really? one Netflix movie of all time, most watched. It's so bad. Per, it's so bad. Per minutes watched. So give oh, that man. how much you trust you get. Well, okay, fine. I will say that we talked about turning it off several times, but we mm -hmm. did watch the whole thing. So I think that says something about Ryan Reynolds. Uh, I, think I thought The Rock you. was terrible in it. Yeah. Gal Gadot's terrible in it. And uh, yeah, the movie's too long. You feel the sexual tension there's in the movie? Yeah. <laughs> there's absolutely, there's no chemistry. The Rock looked like he was upset the whole time. I'm, I'm not even sure why he was in this movie. Was, I mean, maybe that was acting. Whatever mm -hmm. that means for them, but uh, yeah, exhausting. Well, I liked Army paid. of Thieves better, Kyle. Oh, I liked yeah. Army of wow. Thieves better. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds is never going to be friends with either of you. There's a few other things here. And I, so I remember, I mean, going back to Shirley MacLaine's acting, right? I, I just feel like that moment where she can tell that she's being completely used by Mr. Shell Drake, right? I always talk about like people being able to act with their eyes. I think the greatest actors can. Like she's not like physically crying, but you can see how like awful she feels inside and how much she feels that like she's just being used as a thing. This plays against type a little bit because Mr. Shell Drake is played by Fred McMurray, 
who when I was growing up and as a contemporary audience at the time in 1960 would know him as, he was like the father in uh, The Shaggy Dog and um, The Love Bug and stuff like that. Like the old Disney movies that I watched a lot when I was growing up because that seemed to be what was on The Wonderful World of Disney. So that's what how Fred McMurray is known. He's like this kindly older gentleman character actor. And for him to then be cast as like this lecherous old man is just a really interesting casting choice, but he knocks it out of the park. The thing that he kind of referenced at the very beginning is this brilliant thing that Billy Wilder is able to do. I want to watch now all of his other films and to see how many of them would also fit in this list because you have Sunset Boulevard, which ends with a line, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. You have Some Like a Hot that ends with the, one, with, with the line, well, nobody's perfect after he reveals he's a man and the man that he is has been fancying him is like, well, nobody's perfect. And then there's this one where they're kind of doing their little meet, sort of re-meet cute. And she's like, shut up and deal and gives them the pack cards. It's like, oh, like these perfect buttons to end your movies on, which just seems like unfair that he was able to like knock it out of the park so many times. Well, unfair. Just he's an auteur, Kyle. Yeah. I, I think. Um, is, that, is that, did you just make up that word or? <laughs> I think when you have, now uh, uh, I was going to say directors who, but I mean, there's still good directors today. Mm-hmm. But he's definitely somebody that prizes writing and you can feel that. You know, these are all novels. He's also very self-aware. I was, I was just realizing, I mean, I don't, I think I've only seen Some Like a Hot once, so I can't say this, uh, like this is a theme for Billy Wilders, but Sunset Boulevard and this film are so aware that they exist within Hollywood, right? I mean, Sunset Hollywood, uh, Sunset Boulevard is in Hollywood, but this movie, mm-hmm. he Jack Lemmon starts off and he's obsessing with these movies that are on the television at, that he can't really get into, yeah. but... You know, there's a call out that it's like he's kind of fighting with this Hollywood uh, projection of what the good life is supposed to be. There's something intelligent underneath it where uh, Billy Wilder's not, he's not just a, an aesthetist. Like he's not just like, oh, I need to have a pretty picture. And he's not too far the other way, like the Woody Allen thing where he just writes for the sake of, you know, there's, there's, there's a great balance. And these movies really show that. It's great. Well, it's also that thing where I think it is why I say that this still feels contemporary for me is that as early in the history of television as it was in 1960, I don't know. I didn't look at that point. Like the vast majority of people would have had televisions in their homes as a bachelor, as someone who lives alone and who, who is kind of looking for love. It's such an interesting outlook to be, even in 1960, it was like, well, here's my little frozen meal that I threw into the microwave and I'm eating by myself. And who do I get to eat it with? Well, like an old May West movie that's on the TV or the late night talk show host that I fell asleep with, you know, that sort of thing. That's the thing he's lamenting and it's still something that can happen today. We've replaced uh, Hollywood films with Instagram or with social sure. media. And so everybody has this idea of what love is supposed to be like, what their life should look like. And I think this film subtly deals with that too. I mean, when you look at how he approaches Shirley MacLaine's character and how he really believes that they're going to be destined to be together. And then he's completely crushed when it turns out you know, she's mm-hmm. essentially a call girl for his boss. And it's it's aware of this problem that we are aiming um, for these impossible realities. Even the ending, I thought, was not so much... Like, you're talking about how he's got a bit of a pessimistic edge. I, I would say it's more realistic. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't want you to believe that this is the end of their story, that they right. live happily forever. It's kind of like, this is the moment where they get to sit on the couch and eat a microwave or a oven dinner. Yeah, with each other, and uh, he, you know, there's no s- sunset, there's no uh, wedding, there's no uh, celebration. It's kind of like, well, let's uh, on to the next stage. 
yeah, it, it restrains itself a little bit with that. I think the, the other thing I really like about it is that even when he does find that out, when, when Jack Lemmon finds out, oh, you are sleeping with the boss while he's married, <laughs> it is not like, oh, you're disgusting. It's almost like, oh man, like that, that situation sucks for you. But like, I'm cutting the rock in a hard place because I also want to advance my career. We, we both want to be together, but it doesn't look like that's going to be something that can happen right now. Because I feel like in some other instances, that would be like a revulsion thing. Like that would be the the drama inside the movie where it's like, how could you possibly be doing this thing? And that's really not what this leans into a whole lot. Um, it does go to dark places like Shirley MacLaine does try to kill herself in this movie. So it's not like it shies away from getting dark, but I don't think it blames her either for what the men are choosing to do to her. Looking back in 1971, we were casting this light a little bit because 1971 pushed so far to the edge of what could and should be shown on a screen in America. But when you look at films even from this era, it's not like they were all, you know, singing in the rain, which I love. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't just a glowy projection of what America ought to be. You know, we have movies like this where we're trying to reveal a little bit of the underbelly, like corporate culture and what this guy has to do to try to scale the ladder. And that scene, I, this is why I love visually, you know, his uh, projection of, I don't know what the right word is, uh, his depiction, his depiction of corporate America, right? It's like something from a George Orwell type of book. You know, it's like millions, it feels like millions of desks. Everybody looks the same. They're all typing in their little steno pads. And, you know, it, it was even alive then, this uh, awareness of industrial. Did you, did you read on how they made that shot, by the way? No. So it's forced perspective. So it actually is not as big of a room as it looks like. It cannot be. Yeah. Yeah. What the production designer did is had, of course, like Jack Lemon and the main actors on the front desks. And then behind them were successively shorter and shorter people until it was just kids in the background. Uh, uh, so it looks like, like it's like going on forever, and, but yeah, it's yeah. not. It's actually just like That's cool. 15 people crammed together in a small room, but it makes it look like it's huge. That's uh, that's movie making. That's magic. I think yeah. it would look better if it had CGI in it, Dave. That's what I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, does CGI even make things cheaper? I, 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 I'm starting to get sick of it. I don't man. know. I, I keep getting conflicting reports nowadays. And it's like, there's, you know, there's certain things. I don't know if it was in Red Notice or not, but there were certain scenes like, does that, does that chair need to be a CGI creation? Or could you just get a real chair? Well, like, it feels Red so Notice, weird. I, I, I mean, everything they was shot in front that of a whole green thing screen. on a lot. Yeah, yeah. that's the worst part of that movie. And it's probably why they had no chemistry. They're just standing in a room, you Mm -hmm. know, trying to be, I'm not even sure the egg was real at some point. It's just, uh, well, that's that's what I mean. It's like, there's certain shots, like for sure. Like why not composite some things together? Definitely. If you're shooting in a building, you can like use the green screen or blue screen in the windows. If you want to have like a certain atmosphere outside, like I'm totally cool with that. But then, yeah, I see certain movies like, well, that desk and that chair and this thing over here were all CGI creations. Like, you could just put a desk there. I don't know. Like, yeah. it, it feel, I feel like you're just going to brought a desk It can't in. be more expensive to get a desk. It cannot be. It cannot be. There are like 2,000 people that have to animate shit on. Mm. I don't, they don't even use Maya anymore. But whatever, yeah. whatever <laughs> Unreal Engine. You know, it's not just one nerd on a computer. It's, yeah, right, you right, know, right. it's a room full of nerds no, on a very person. large computer. <laughs> one zero zero one zero zero zero. I have a desk. I can bring a desk to you if you need one. With the Marvel and Disney, uh, Star Wars universe, like if you're supposed to be off world and they use that light wall, I mean, that's fine. 
right? It's like, okay, I'm already, I'm already accepting the fact that this is not a real place. So if everything in the background right. is going to be fake, great. It's better than uh, George Lucas uh, hand animating his uh, Jar Jar Binks, which really does not hold up. I would have made this movie better too, a Jar Jar Binks cameo. I think that would have really <laughs> elevated it. You look at Red Notice and uh, the whole thing's... It just feels fake. But you look at a movie like this, and I know it's 1960, and we're nerds, so maybe we give this a little bit more credence than a modern audience might. But when you have a a set, imagine, mm. like, the apartment's actually an apartment, Kyle. Oof. Right? Oh, my I God. Know. He walks into the kitchen, and there's actually a kitchen and a real stove. Wow. It's groundbreaking shit. We might one day be able to go back to this uh, expensive idea of uh, actually shooting in a place oh, that exists. Set dressing. <laughs> <laughs> what, they use human beings as actors? Oh my God. It must cost Back so much money. Back in my money. day, there was an art director who was able to make things and bring them oh, in. Oh man. We're being facetious a little bit. There's a lot of good movies still being made, but it makes this movie great. It's really fun to watch. I really enjoyed it. It's weird hearing Dave sound kind of happy. Well, let's do some backstory here then. So... The apartment was released on June 15th of 1960. It is currently rated 8.3 on IMDb, has a 94 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes from 72 critics, it has a 93%. From 25,000 plus users, it has a 94%. This is available pretty much everywhere you want. Basically, it has DVD and Blu-ray releases. It's available on iTunes and YouTube to rent or to own. And then it is on Criterion as we record this, but I don't think we'll be it when you listen to it. Yeah. Let's put it that way. I mean, they took Sunset Boulevard off. I just got it in luckily, but why? Just leave it on there, right? Mm-hmm. Licensing be damned. Currently on the Letterboxd Top 250, it is at the number 60 position, which is why okay. we are talking about it. Its budget was $3 million in 1960. It would go on to make $24.6 million, which is adjusted for inflation. $229 million. This is making Amazing. the same as Black Widow did in the United States. Speaking of Black <laughs> Can Widow. Can you imagine the apartment coming out and making as much as Black Widow did? Black Widow is the antithesis of this film. Also, if Black Widow had been directed by Billy Wilder and they didn't blow up cars, it could have won an Oscar. <laughs> Just just took place in one single room and everything. By the way, I keep pitching this idea. Those are the best scenes with the family. I think I think I would love, and everyone else would hate it, and I would love it. Marvel has to make a superhero movie. It would work better with like a Black Widow or one of those types of characters, where it just stays in one room the entire thing. It's it's like even if it's an action movie, right? Like it's a ten million dollar budgeted film, and it's just like it's an interrogation for ninety minutes, and that's that's your movie. Be cool. I think this. I think this is why I like John Wick more mm-hmm. than its sequels and why, because it's a, essentially low budget. They knew exactly who they were mm-hmm. and, and they actually beat up real people. That would have made Black Widow good if they, the budget had been 30 million bucks and it's just Scarlett Johansson actually acting, which she's capable of. Yeah. And uh, Rachel Weisz, who's also apparently who's an actress, great. Kyle. She she's might great. have won, an, you know, awards, who knew? And, uh, you know, such a missed well, this opportunity. Is, yeah, this is not We're a, talking about a Black everything Widow other podcast. Than well, it's plot description for the apartment. That is the plot description is <laughs> a Manhattan insurance clerk tries to rise in his company by letting its executives use his apartment for trysts, but complications trysts. end. 
but the complications and a romance of his own ensue. It stars Jack Lemmon as C.C. Baxter, Shirley MacLaine as Fred Kublick, and Fred McMurray as Mr. Sheldrake. What do you want to say about any of these actors, Dave? Nothing. I did not do any of my homework. Oh my I God, forgot. Dave, come on. Um, well, um, I think Sean McLean be... is Canadian and uh, so is Warren Beatty. <laughs> I was going to say, like, it has to be mentioned every time that it comes up uh, is sisters to Warren Beatty because uh, everyone is always so shocked on Twitter every 10 days when that is revealed. It seems like <laughs> someone new has discovered that fact. Well, they have different names and nobody wants to acknowledge anyone from Canada. So that's mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. look at uh, Christopher Plummer. Why can't that mm-hmm. man... He had so many Oscar turns, should have, yeah. you know, should've. for 40 they years. And doesn't even say a boat. Maybe that is, maybe they're prejudiced against Canadians. What's going on with that? Well, until Drake, apparently. <laughs> Drake will be the first Canadian to win an, a, a Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Oh, God. It's probably <laughs> going to happen. Uh, that will, be we'll the, just close the podcast to that. Degrassi, movie. the next, next generation, the movie. That's what it's going to be. <laughs> He's like the dad. <laughs> That's right. Well, because you haven't done your homework, Dave, I guess we'll just go here to, uh, other than I love Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Shirley MacLaine, you should watch her in Postcards from the Edge. It's a great uh, mm. Meryl Streep movie. And uh, yeah, go go and watch the old Shaggy Dog movies on Disney Plus if you want to see more Shaggy of Fred Dog. McMurray. Um, oh, I will just quickly, because I just Googled it. Shirley MacLaine was nominated for an Oscar for this movie. But yeah, but she didn't she did win. Not win. No. I'll look at right Jack Lemmon. Even though this one best picture. I don't know uh, what movies are out in 1960, but. This was written by Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond, directed by Billy Wilder. Uh, And because there's not a lot on him to talk about, we'll start with I.A.L. Diamond, who went by the nickname Is, apparently. So everyone in Hollywood would refer to him as Is, I.Z. Or IZ. So he started writing in college specifically for his uh, for their annual variety show, as well as the campus magazine. And then instead of pursuing an engineering career, he took a job in Hollywood, uh, but didn't didn't really find success until around 1957 when he was paired with Billy Wilder. And he would go on to collaborate with him on 12 films where he'd be the co-writer on those movies. What, What is kind of described about him is that some of those films featured characters engaging in an endless but friendly squabbling such as joe and jerry and some like it hot and holmes and watson in the private life of sherlock holmes diamond's widow claims that these characters were based on her husband's relationship with wilder or our relationship dave i think we could make a screenwriting duo and just infuse our actors of a squabbling duo (laughs) we need to write a script and become mm-hmm. millionaires because uh, one of these streaming platforms will play, pay for any garbage. And if there's someone who's going to write Red some Notice, garbage. Dave, they will. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just put words, you know? They don't even have to be sequential and someone will give us a million It's bucks. called Orange Warning. And it's about <laughs> three two guys. hot people and they're <laughs> fighting. <laughs> give it's me money. Jade egg? Yeah. It's, it's not gold. It's not gold. Billy Wilder was older than Diamond, uh, and he was born in Germany. And I don't know if you heard about this here, Dave, but there was a bit of troubles that started in the 1930s in Germany. Huh. Interesting. And anyways, he escaped, but unfortunately, his grandmother, his mother, and his stepfather would all die in the Holocaust. So it was not a great time for him. He started making films in Germany, but then left during this time to go to Paris 
which is where he made his very first film. It's a French film and then moved to Hollywood. Uh, his break would come uh, as a co-writer of screenplays, specifically for the movie Nanachka in 1939, directed by another immigrant from Europe, Ernst Lubitsch, and starring Greta Garbo, the Swedish nice. actress. By the way, this is I love old Hollywood in the 30s and 40s because you do have all those German immigrants coming over and you get those feel like it's Ernst Lubitsch making this Hollywood <laughs> film and... Uh, Oh, my God. The guy who made uh, Fritz Lang and all the, these Fritz other people Lang, who have like right. these great, great names. He would eventually start directing his own material. A big one was Double Indemnity, which is still a very highly regarded movie, uh, as well as The Lost Weekend, which won Best Picture at the Academy Awards in 1945. Also won Wilder and Oscar for Best Director and another for Best Screenplay. I've actually also watched The Lost Weekend, by the way. It is a wild movie because it is very anti-alcohol in 19... 19- 45 like it's like it goes for it <laughs> but like this is why you shouldn't drink to excess because it's awful this is why we uh, tried prohibition and yeah. uh, we're sorry it didn't work imagine a culture that needs to be placated hmm. that's right nothing wrong with that though nothing yeah. wrong with that the, the worst is that uh, he drinks so much that he starts to like hallucinate different things mm-hmm. and so his big one is that he sees like rats coming through the walls oh, and of course that like freaks me out and then bats like going around with his head and stuff like that the 50s were probably his best decade because he co-writes and directs sunset boulevard sunset boulevard ace in the hole sabrina um and then his first collaboration with marilyn monroe in the seven year itch which is the movie that is like the most iconic because it's the dress that blows up on the grate yeah. that was okay the guy was too annoying it's hard to oh, watch. I know, right, all right. And then yeah. Sun Like It Hot, of course, that we've already mm-hmm. talked about. I love Marilyn Monroe, by the way. I think she was, I think she's kind of looked at as a ditzy blonde, but she is a pretty great well, actress in what she could do. Have you heard of these books? They're for kids, but they're called Little People, Big Things. Anyways, they do these summaries of people, mm. famous people's lives for kids. And Marilyn Monroe is fascinating because, uh, they talk you know, about how she got killed kids. with pills and JFK at the end for kids well they always gloss over a little bit of that but she gave ella fitzgerald her break because she mm. ella fitzgerald was not allowed to play in the big clubs in hollywood right. she was black and marilyn monroe was like either she comes or i don't come back to this place right, which is right. <laughs> i mean that's incredible she's yeah. uh she's much more than people realize it's like dolly yeah. parton wrote like she's done so much for the world but all we remember is uh one Jolie. country song or something but she wrote everything like there's so many Famous songs. It's fascinating. Yeah, this is this is because you have a hatred for everything country related. But uh, yes, Dolly Parton has is like an extensive <laughs> songwriting yeah, career. Like two, one of the no, best. All, yeah, songwriting. Yes, I just think it's interesting. We uh, we try to sum up people in sound bites, and Marilyn Monroe is one of well, them. Well, yeah, the more you look at it, I think it's 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 better for the people in power to make it look like oh, she was asking for it, or oh, it's like it was her mm-hmm. own fault that she got caught up in this. When really, it's more complicated. It's like, yeah, you, she was advocating for more inclusivity. She was advocating for all this other stuff. And it's like, well, maybe we could just kill her. Maybe that would help. And then <laughs> our problems go away. So our sponsor is It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, it was because of the success of Some Like It Hot, though, that Wilder knew he wanted to work with Jack Lemmon again. And so the initial idea was to copy the movie Brief Encounter, which was written by Noel Coward, directed by David lean which in itself was based on the play still life by noel coward uh but because of the Hayes code in the 40s they couldn't explicitly say what was happening <laughs> to the people who were having their brief encounter uh or even mention adultery 
So, but that was something that could be referenced in the 1960s as the rules were kind of like slowly being bent. Wilder also wanted to incorporate a real life story that was happening in Hollywood. This real life scandal where Agent Jennings Lang was shot by producer Walter Wagner for having an affair with Wagner's wife, actress Joan Bennett. They were carrying out an affair in one of Lang's lower level agents' apartments. Uh, and one other element taken, taken from real life was that of IAL Diamond's friends coming back home after breaking up with their girlfriend to find that that girlfriend had committed suicide in their bed. So a situation so ripe for romantic comedy that it practically writes itself. Classic American, <laughs> uh, the classic American fairy tale. Oh my right. gosh. The second yeah. this goes like the fact that like Wilder has such this deep trauma from like the Holocaust and having his family members pass away from it. I think Diamond has a similar pass in his history too, but and seeing like this type of damaging story from his friends, it's just like damaged people often either turn to comedy or horror to work through their feelings. <laughs> and it just seems like that's what they're doing here. It's like, this is so awful. We're going to make it funny so that we can deal with it somehow. I might add, actually, not just those are the two outlets, but perhaps wisdom only comes from trauma. And maybe mm -hmm. what's happening with modern cultures, we, uh, as much as we like to traumatize things, yeah, 9-11 was a brutal thing and all of these things, right? But uh, coronavirus sucks, but it's not World War II. It's not, mm -hmm. uh, it's not the Holocaust. People who experienced Vietnam have written more important things and made more important movies than we're seeing right now complaining about the internet and whether I have access to Twitter or if my account was disabled. I don't think it's necessarily that, you know, Billy Wilder went through a difficult life and made a comedy. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it's why he's a writer and why the stories he tells feel still relevant and important today because yeah. they're human problems. Having sex is not a 1960s problem. <laughs> you know? Uh, Selling right, right, right. your selling your soul for your job. That is not a 1960s problem. This would win Best Picture at the Academy Awards that year. The last movie, by the way, to win that was in black and white mm. un until Schindler's List in 1993. But I would say the true, I don't know why, but I, I always think like Schindler's List and then there's The Artist as well that was shot in black right. and white that won Best Picture. But I've never seen it actually. The Artist, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's not great, but it's fine. Uh, I was I, I always put the actress next to Schindler's List because the whole movie isn't in black and white, and I always like to make that distinction. So, regardless, Nerd. it's like the 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 last true black and white film I'm going to say was was The Apartment. Something, by the way, that Kevin Spacey always hated, other than of course none. Uh, having you know teenagers to forcibly have sex with, um, <laughs> allegedly he because uh, Kevin Spacey dedicated his win for American Beauty to Jack Lemmon because Jack Lemmon didn't win for the apartment. Ah, uh, weird. You watch too much Oscars. I'm just <laughs> looking at the Oscars website and I yeah. noticed one thing in 1961: art direction and cinematography and costume design are split into black and white and color awards. Yes, yeah, they did that for a long time, which I think is fascinating. Uh, makes yeah. sense because it's oh, yeah. uh, by the by seventies. You're designing things for contrast. Yeah. Hundred percent. This is actually a good point here. Twenty twenty one apparently had or did have like a bunch of movies that came out in black and white for some reason. Mm -hmm. It just was this mm -hmm. exposure like five different movies. I have yet to see Come On, Come On as of this recording, but I'm excited to go and watch it. That's the new Joaquin Phoenix movie. Okay. But it's something that bugged me in Belfast, actually, because it's like, oh, I can tell that you shot this on digital in color and then just made it black and white instead yeah, of yeah. conceiving this shot in a black and white format where something like a passing or something like that felt more like 
even if that's exactly what happened in the same way, at least it felt no, like it was conceived be. for a black and white to be shot in black and white. I mean, anybody, no, that I shouldn't use such a broad term, but when one learns photography and I suspect filmmaking, when you learn how color works to the human eye and on film or on the digital thing, uh, with some experience, you'll realize that desaturating a picture does not make it better, but- right. Many of us exist at the beginning in these so-called presets. So if you just click a button and it goes to black and white, you're like, oh, I don't know why, but I like it better. It's because uh, there's less uh, color interference because we mm -hmm. load color with meaning. But when you watch movies like this or Sunset Boulevard, it, you know, one comes to realize they're not wearing, let's say, a shiny gold a dress on a marble floor, they're choosing colors that are going to react with the film uh, to create high contrast images, which is why when it's done by people who don't understand that or like on a digital medium and just desaturate in post-production, often it looks like shit. And mm -hmm. passing, for example, uh, is just so much more intentional. I, I mean, I don't know for sure. I didn't research it, but that movie is quite beautiful. And I suspect, right. uh, considering how intentionally it was shot, you know, having... Um, you know, these two black actresses, one actually look different, wearing clothes that project her uh, to look like a so-called white woman of the 1920s. Uh, you don't just throw in a white dress, right? It's just not how uh, film works. So yeah, um, yeah, we need more intentionality, Kyle. I agree. You know? Yeah, yeah. I more think craft. I intentionally want you to shut up. I mean, this is also my like old man yells at cloud moment. Even like, I would say like prestige filmmaking that happens out there that I, I, I'm enjoying. And yet there's this thing that's holding me back from fully loving it because it looks like they just shot this is such inside baseball term, but there's this feature on cameras called uh, a log, which basically is creating like a very flat yeah. image. Like the, the colors yeah. aren't popping out very much with the intention that when you bring it into your editor on your computer, that you can really play around with color if you want to, but it feels like they're just releasing it in from that log format and everything's so washed out and flat. And it's like, ugh. Can we just bring color back well, back into this movie? Because it feels so weird. I think uh, there's a color grading. It's like the, I mean, I hate Shake Games, so I bring it up too much, but it's a fad, right? Mm. So uh, color grading and this muted tones and, you know, how they handle their contrast ratios. Everything works within fads and trends, but I agree with you. There's something about what's going on today that's either overly emphasized, there's too much contrast, too much color, you know, it's just too much digital, or they're trying to be super artsy and it gets super flat and dry and almost uh, monotone, even though it's not black and white. And it's just too extreme on either end. I'm trying to think of a good movie we've watched in the last couple. I mean, I like Dune a lot, but you can make the same argument about Dune. <laughs> Dennis Villeneuve is like, I mean, everything's so rich and uh, loaded with color. He just understands how they work with mm -hmm. mood and, and uh, language. But this is a problem with digital, I think. Digital has made it too easy to manipulate. When you did film, you had to know the science of how film works. The pro is that it's brought, it's um, democratized to the extent where anyone literally can yes. pick up their uh, iPhone or, or a cheap digital camera and make a movie nowadays. The, the flip side of that is that then you do get a lot of amateur looking stuff. <laughs> I feel unless you're getting like a very experienced cinematographer or sound designer. Um, I actually read this really fascinating article all about why it's so hard to hear actors speak their lines nowadays in mm. films. Uh, and it's specifically because of that. It's because they don't prioritize sound. They don't and so pay it's for, like, yeah. all right, well, it, it, I can only grab as much as you give me. And if you're giving me bad sound, like there's only so much I can do to make it work. These are all quotes you can find on Kyle's other podcasts about why he can't find uh... mm -hmm. <laughs> 
can only give uh, how much you give me. Yeah, all right. So I have some notes I've written down here, Dave. Number one, this is a small little pet peeve that always bugs me, though. I mm. hate that they put new studio logos on old films. So they have the new MGM, like super digital, like flashy, like lion yeah. roaring. And then it's into like this old black and white movie. Like, no, just put the old MGM logo on there. They mentioned that there is 8 million people that are living in New York City. Um, and I was like, oh, there must be like so many more people in New York now. And it's not. There's only eight and a half million people in New York. So I found that really well, fascinating. It's an island. Well, they're talking yeah. about, yeah, Manhattan. There's only so many people. Mm-hmm. The whole of New York with the boroughs close to 20, I'm pretty sure. It's like Toronto. If you say Toronto's 2 million people, that is incorrect, yeah. even though that's statistically right. how it's labeled. I want to delve into some of those commercials and like TV stuff that he's watching there. First off, he's actually watching or trying to watch because he actually never does it because of all the commercials that are coming up there is the movie Grand Hotel. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Grand Hotel by any chance? No. Um, I actually kind of like it. It's a, another one of the early Best Picture winners, like the third or fourth. Like it's a really early 1930s, but it has like the two uh, the two big Barrymores that are starring in it. And I think Greta Garbo is in that one too. And a lot of famous actors and actresses. But it's fun. It's really just like a hangout. It's like, it is kind of like the Ocean's 13 of movies where it's like all the famous people are just hanging out in a hotel <laughs> for two hours. But one of the commercials is like, do you have wobbly dentures? <laughs> That's how they put it in there. It's like, oh, ads were just as bad 60 years ago as they were, as they are today. Well, oh, it comes from somewhere. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Do you feel bad, Dave, that Tinder basically stole his entire side hustle? <laughs> oh, man. You know, the real question is, what was, where did this originate from? It's probably always been a thing, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, like, as I said, like, this is sort of based on something that was happening in, in Hollywood at the time that he yeah. that he knew about it's it's more the weird thing is like how is the and they mention it in the movie so I'm I'm not asking that question but it is a really interesting thing about like the very first time this happens and then it's like hey this guy like have sex with broads in his apartment <laughs> <laughs> everyone go nuts well how gross is it I mean this is why I don't like the idea of Airbnb but if you are just standing outside waiting for your boss your boss to mm-hmm. finish. And then you got to go and lay in that bed to take a sleep because you're so tired. It's fucking disgusting. (laughs) I mean, you have some extra seats that are ready to go, Dave. Nobody nobody fucks dry, Kyle. (laughs) There's going to be, there's going to be shit everywhere, right? And he's just heating up a dinner and he's like, I'm too tired. Like, I need to go lie down. Like, no, you don't. No, you don't. He doesn't even have a laundry machine. You got to carry all that shit to the, you know, to the corner place with some coins. It's so gross. Maybe, maybe that's one of his like screening questions. Sir, do you fuck dry? Is that, <laughs> is that a thing you can do for me? <laughs> Jesus. All right. Maybe that's why he sleeps on the couch that first night. It's like, I'm maybe. not going back in that bed. Because you're so late. Yeah. It's just, yeah. and it's not the movie. It's just the idea of it, that this is really happening. Airbnb, man, like strangers come into your house, uh, they're just taking naps now. And then what? It's just, there's such an invasion. I don't Don't, understand how that became so Don't get in my head, Dave. I am going to be staying in an Airbnb when I go to New York City in April. So, can we not? (laughs) If you're going to New York City, an Airbnb is, there's going to be some stuff. Someone someone (laughs) definitely had sex on that bed. (laughs) Or died, or there's bed bugs. Yeah. Or there's a rat in it and you'll have to deal with that. So, if there's one city, Kyle... (laughs) <laughs> that uh, cohabits with rats. It's definitely New York City. It's basically a quarter rat at this point. Yeah, uh, they pay the rent. I mean, I, how else do you pay the rent? They've got to bring something in. <laughs> I just like the idea of like 
seven people sharing a small apartment and one of the uh, one of them is just a large rat smoking a cigarette like god what a day am i right we did watch we dragging that pizza down the stairs god (laughs) yeah that's probably where Stuart little is written from they're just like if only this rat would pull its weight you know get a job wearing a muscle shirt that's all stained and gross and stuff like that so they are mentioning some things that are contemporary to the time to talk about how i think it's one of the girls is like oh i saw I was watching The Untouchables with Bob Stack last night. So the original Untouchables, not the movie The Untouchables that you might be familiar with, uh, starring Robert Stack, who we would know as the host of Unsolved Mysteries oh. or from the movie Airplane, if you've ever watched right. the movie Airplane. But he was a big deal. He's a big deal in the 1960s. I also love the fact that there's such a huge side plot of the music man in this movie. It's like, you got, you got tickets to the music man. Oh my God. The music man. It had been playing for three years at this point, Dave. It's like, Such if you're not seeing it by nerd. that point, like, come on. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> you don't even have Robert Preston on the stage at that point. Oh Who cares? My God. It's the oh music God. man. <laughs> only you, only you would notice <laughs> and be offended by something like that. Looking mm-hmm. at the calendar and be like, no, this is three years too late. It's bullshit. Oh, I didn't need to look at One a calendar, star. Dave. I knew that off the dome. <laughs> I always, I, I've said this before. I actually think the last time I mentioned this was in our Eyes Wide Shut episode way back then Ooh. about how I, I love good prop work. I love it when there's like an actor who's just like using a prop really effectively. There's this great moment where like there's the key under the mat and like Jack Lemmon has to use a Kleenex in order to touch the key because I'm not touching this after <laughs> what you've done. So great work. Great work that's going on there. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he was inspired or not, because I, I actually don't know the specifically Bob Fosse, the choreographer and then eventually movie director started utilizing this a lot in his choreography. But the bowler hat that Jack Lemon has and then cocks to one side is such a Bob Fosse staple of his mm. choreography of like the side hat. If you've again watched uh, Cabaret or uh, it's going to be the big one, but a lot of uh, the Bob Fosse choreography, even on stage, did that same like hat work. Chicago, I guess, would have been the other big one. So I don't know. I don't know if Bob Fosse was inspired by this movie to do something with that or not. Probably. I, I thought it was interesting that it, I mean, that I it looks so similar. I think we could pull off bowler hats. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was probably inspired by it when he brought mm-hmm. it in for Clockwork Orange. The little, I don't know, underground club that Trina McLean mm-hmm. and her boss goes to. There's that gentleman who is playing the piano. I don't know what his actual character name is. Chinese he, guy. Yeah. yeah. Chinaman, as I've been cr- called before. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, that's what Dave said. And uh, he's partly <laughs> Korean, so you can be Not angry bitter. at him. Yeah. Not me. How about the asshole called me that? All right, keep going. Calgarian, of course. Uh, later on, Jack Lemmon says that he has an album from that guy and he plays it for her. Did you see what the name of the album is called? No. <laughs> It's called a rickshaw boy. Oh, wow. It's like, oh my God. I can't Perfect. believe it that this movie decides that that's what they need to do is call this a rickshaw boy. Anyways. Well, they're not aware yet that Asian people are human beings. So, um, you know, never It was mind. a different time, Dave. Who cares? Different time. Well, I can't throw the movie out, but no. it the, is the, something the, interesting. The entire, the one last thing I have written down, I couldn't see exactly again, as far as like inspiration goes. Have you ever seen Sin City, the movie Sin City? Like Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did that not win an Oscar? It was in black and white. Was, yeah. Don't know, <laughs> Dave. good pause. <laughs> I think just leave the pause in. in. Be like some crickets, some foley. 
But in this movie, you have Shirley MacLaine saying, you fool, you damn fool. And they have Brittany Murphy say it in the exact same way in Sin City. Oh, did you Google that or did you? Well, it's like, I know that line is in Sin City. So I went oh, wow. to a YouTube and just, just to verify like how she says it. And it, like same intonation, same delivery. I'm you... like, this is, this is too, too similar too to be a coincidence yeah. to me. Yeah. I don't even remember anything that happened in Sin City. I remember Benicio Del Toro was wearing a face. Yeah. You know? I think I've seen That's... that movie three times. So it's kind oh, of wow. a little bit more in my memory banks than most. Sin City, everyone. That was probably the beginning of Bruce Willis mailing it in. You yeah. know? He's like, you know, people like this movie. I don't have to do anything except get beat <laughs> up. So, uh, it's just what I'm going to do from now on. I like that Mickey Rourke in that movie. He's like, he's going to go fight. It's like, all I have is my, what is like, my coat, my whatever, my shoes and my mitts. And it's like, he shows his hands and stuff like that. That's like actually his comeback their role, fists, his mitts. Yeah, that really was his comeback. Actually, some people yeah. thought that, that would, he would get an Oscar nomination for that role. And then it was The Wrestler, I think the next year is when he actually got it. So anything else that you have written down for The Apartment? This is how much I like this movie. I didn't actually take out my notebook. I just watched it. Imagine that, Kyle. I know you don't understand what that's like because you're a huge nerd. And even when we're at Dune in the theater, you got your little pen light like the movie <laughs> critics used to look like. No, uh, um, I, yeah, I just, I loved uh, watching it. Oscar Isaac, beard or no beard? Question mark. Hmm. <laughs> Timothy Chalamet. Uh, yes. <laughs> We, yeah. <laughs> I think that says everything about how I feel. Again, it's not a perfect movie just because I can't get with the tone anymore. Uh, specifically, just, you know, it's just a lot of men doing things that men mm. are supposed to do, even if it's criticizing it, but it's it's just there. So, you know, it's not it's not perfect. That's really my only kind of, I, I'm going to call it a minor, minor criticism, although I don't know how minor it really is, is that you do have to have like a heaping level of suspension of disbelief because he is outright stalking that woman for oh, the it's first creepy. like 20 How'd minutes how'd you find that oh i went into the cards and i looked at everything I about your life everything like, about Ooh. you i'm like so like as as people have pointed out to me it's only creepy if you don't think the other person is attractive so she likes it she, she enjoys it but it's like don't do that as your first thing because just don't they will do end that very just badly. don't do that I mean, I know people do that on social media and, and I don't know if there's mm-hmm. still a term called creeping it, but just don't do that. You know, just l- let things happen naturally. I don't know. It's just so gross. Why does he have access to it? You know, <laughs> she's not even in his department. Like, what, what is mm-hmm. he doing down there? It's because he's a man. Correct. That's why. And he deserves to know, Dave. We're done here. The machine has told us that we do need to wrap this up. So we should first move on to Critics' Choice. All right. Um, let's go with Roger Ebert back in 19... 19- um, actually, How I think old this is Roger Ebert that he's reviewed every movie ever made? <laughs> well, he was the Chicago <laughs> Sun-Times like movie critic for like 40 years, Dave. He's like uh, the so Yoda film. He actually did not review this in 1960. This was like a retrospective of Billy Wilder. Um, I think he wrote about the apartment for his like great movies list. But uh, he wrote about kind of this overall idea of Billy Wilder and this movie in particular, where he says, in observing that The Lost Weekend hasn't dated, I could be making a comment about Wilder's work in general. Even a lightweight romantic comedy like Sabrina holds up better than its 1990s remake. And the great Wilder pictures don't play as period pieces. Oh, sorry. And the great Wilder pictures don't play as period pieces, but look us straight in the eye. 
Some Like It Hot is still funny. Sunset Boulevard is still a masterful gothic character comedy. And the apartment is still tougher and more poignant than the material might have permitted. The valuable element in Wilder is his adult sensibility. His characters can't take flight with formula plots because they are weighted down with the trials and responsibilities of working for a living. In many movies, the characters hardly even seem to have jobs. But in the apartment, they have to be reminded that they have anything else. I thought that was actually a really great call out. It's like, you're right. In so many other, either whether it be romantic comedies yeah. or not, it's like, does anyone work in this movie or does anyone have any other responsibilities? It seems so weird that you're able to just like jump and do this adventure. Yeah. They, you can't write a, a story where people are just like, oh, everything's great if you have mm -hmm. to work because there's nothing great about working. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Anti-work over here. I will say, you know, all of those scenes like of the corporate environment <laughs> reminded me of why I don't fit in that world because, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, that's not uh, just the kind of place I've been working at, but it is, it is fascinating to see those things depicted in any film. Being John Malkovich is the same thing, you know, you just, mm. this, these uh, depictions of the corporate world lifestyle, you're just like, whoa. Not human. The thing that killed me, like death by a thousand cuts, was just the inane small talk that had to be like oh, upkept yeah. on a daily basis. And like, I don't care. I just, <laughs> I just don't care about any of this stuff. That's also, why anytime sitcoms. there's, there's, yeah, there's nothing I mean, to talk about. There's always plenty to talk about, Dave. But uh, no, there's, if you've ever been to like a corporate meeting before, like an all hands meeting, have to come in type of thing. Awful. And you have to sit through like every like corporate buzzword, like the synergy and the fruition that's going to come from us, like uh, analyzing what's best for the customer. Like this, this stop it. Just yeah. tell me what you want me to do. Just stop it. <sighs> that's Anyways. why we weren't successful. We weren't uh -huh. renting out our apartments. Kyle. We just weren't playing the game. Luckily, we. I have a new app I'm going to be releasing tomorrow called Dry Fuck, um, and it's <laughs> going to be it's going to take the <laughs> very popular. People are just very like popular. really. You can do that? I can sleep in the bed after? Wow. Oh, wow. I'll rent All my right. shit out. Cleaning service. <laughs> so here is the counter counter opinion by, uh, unfortunately, Pauline Kale did not talk about this movie that I could find, by Mr. Peter John Dyer of Sight and Sound. While the mordant ruthlessness of the asides at the expense of big business intrigues, indiscretions in Christmas parties is compromised by a final sequence of quite awful sentimentality. Who that was his well, That has to be written in like the last five years. Who is this yeah, person? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Th that's the kind of person who likes uh, Blue Valentine. Oh, jeez. What is it with you and Blue Valentine? It's like, you're the only person I know that talks about that movie nonstop. So much. That movie or uh, what's the other what one? Did Ryan How did it hurt you, Dave? What's the one with the Alzheimer's? The Notebook. What a piece mm -hmm. of shit that is, too. Oh, God. Uh, anyways, um, I don't know. What, what What is it that... Why do people hate? I mean, I hate a lot of things, too, Kyle, but... Uh, That's what, rich what coming of, from you, I was going about to say, Dave. Like, what are you what talking kind about? Of, what kind of review is that? It doesn't even talk about the movie. There's something very personal. Like that guy tried to rent his apartment out and it just didn't turn out well. <laughs> didn't do it. <laughs> Nobody wanted I thought, it. I thought this was like a how-to manual. It did not work <laughs> at all. All right. So uh, I guess we should also answer the question that we answer every week. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? What do you think, Dave? Yeah, it holds up. I mean, the movie is fantastic to watch. And I, I suspect like all the classics that, Anybody could watch it. Uh, as far as relevance, the human aspect is 
but it is hard to get over that tone like we're talking about you know i think that people who are looking for uh movies that show gender equality and uh and stories that are a little bit more civic minded might have difficulty getting into mm. the narratives that we're used to because we're a little bit older of this man run world doing man things that part where he talks about him stalking her he definitely i had a pause for like oh where's this move gonna go because that's creepy but um yeah but it's still i mean i loved it i thought it was a great movie i'm yeah i'm a yes and yes on this honestly i think that a modern audience could lock into this quite easily because of the things that they're talking about yeah maybe we won't know like the very specific references they're making on like the tv shows or the musical sure. or whatever but the idea of like being in love being in this awkward situation trying to climb the corporate ladder being single like all that stuff i think is still very very relevant to today i think it's written super well and photographed really well so i yeah i'm i'm kind of on board with this movie even with some of those like tiny issues i have with it so mm. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to rating this in just a moment, but before we do, that is what Dave and I thought about this. What do you think? You can send feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. And if you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, which is letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. And something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Um, I should also do a pitch once again for our YouTube channel if you want to go and yell at us over there. We got a positive comment the other day. So that's good. Uh, it's, yeah, that's something. That know? is that is something. <laughs> we appreciate it. I don't want to sound <laughs> ungrateful. It's just it's not par for the course. It's okay. It's fine. I'm not bitter. So Dave, out of five, what would you give the apartment? I'm going to go pretty high. I think I'm going to go with a four and a half. Um, wow. I would definitely watch this movie again. I really liked it. Again, the, it's not perfect. So if Sunset mm -hmm. Boulevard's a five, I would put this below yeah. it. I would so. actually, actually do the exact same thing, to be honest with you. I think Sunset Boulevard, if I'm comparing just Billy Wilder movies together, I still lean more towards probably Sunset Boulevard. It's like a perfect movie. Isn't it, isn't so it great to be in love again, Dave? Just We're both at a 4.5. We're we are so aligned <laughs> on this movie here this week. Instead of fighting every other week uh, like we did for the past year. So in our list of the top Letterbox films that we have talked about on this show, that means that this is going to tie with two other, no, sorry, three other films. I can't read. So from top to bottom, Yee Yee, The Iron Giant, and City Lights. So how would you well, put those into this? Iron Giant is on this list. It wasn't in the 1999 list. It's both. It's both. I would definitely put it above uh, the bottom two, like Charlie Chaplin and uh, mm -hmm. Brad Bird. It's tough with Yee Yee because yeah. Oh man, I've watched the apartment more times, unfortunately. Sure. But I yeah. think, I think I might lean more to liking Yee more for me personally. Yeah, I mean, it would be hard to watch that again because it's pretty long and it's just so lived in. So it's not mm -hmm. necessarily like I want to watch it again. <laughs> yeah, um, but it is good. I think. Yeah, I would put this below Yee. So we have talked about 11 films that are a part of the Letterboxd Top 250, just to put this in perspective. So entering our list, so entering our list at the new number four position is The Apartment. 
So again, we get to spend a bit more time here in like some of the best movies of all time, apparently. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's find out what we're watching here next week, Dave. Let me just push this button here. Oh, a movie that I have been really eager to see for a long, long time. We're going to watch La Samurai next week. I'm just, I have also not seen it. I'm just going to check that Criterion still uh, streams this fucking thing. Sure. <laughs> no, it's still there. I, I'm excited. We get to, uh, you know, when I first heard the title, mm-hmm. uh, when I put this on my wish list and maybe a year and a half ago, I thought it was Japanese, but we get to go watch a very beautiful Frenchman do some yeah, stuff. Yeah, we can see so. de la again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which we learned uh, when we did our episode on the swing and a miss called Red Sun. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so much potential lost. In 1971. Well, hopefully he succeeds in his potential here uh, in La Samurai. But we'll find Look out. This picture. Look at this picture, Kyle. Uh, I know you're giving is, us Dave. a five already. Yeah. Beautiful. I will say a thousand percent. That is not a dry fuck right there. <laughs> <laughs> as wet as it gets. I intentionally want you to shut up.